to the gray area where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news and reviews, and focus on the interrelationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 104th episode in a weekly series called Art of Phoenix. Here with me is Phoenix Perry, New York game developer and founder of the Code Liberation Foundation. Thank you for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's exciting uh, to talk to you. We'll get to New York here in a little bit. Um, so what is your news of the week? What's going on for you? Well, this week we kicked off the high school version of Code Liberation Foundation, and that was pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell people what that is. Break it down for them. Sure. Well, Code Liberation uh, Foundation is an organization that I founded um, in March, uh, April of last year, when I really realized how few game developers or women uh, currently were at Four percent, which is is disgracefully low, um, around the entire industry and in computer like computer programming, it's around twenty four percent. So gaming is 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 scraping down to the bottom, and uh, it really hit me when I was at the game developer conference this year that not only did I have the power to change it as an educator, but I was also um, I was also going to continue to see this situation until I started to make changes for my peers and the people around me. So um, that's why I started it. And one of the things we decided to do was run a version of it for high school girls to kind of inspire them uh, early on to do to do um, programming at at a younger age. So we, we got funded by NYU Poly to run a high school version, which is really cool. And uh, it's a science uh, technology um, and engineering and math program that a stem project program and we had our first our first project this week and we're teaching c plus plus and open frameworks to a, a group of high school girls interested in becoming game programmers so that's really exciting for us <laughs> excellent i've seen a couple programs like this coming out and it's really really neat to see exciting to see i think there's a, a site called girls who code as well mm -hmm. it's kind of you know seeing people try to address that issue and make it more available and i guess have a group of people do it together because I think sometimes it's easier if you have, you know, a bunch of friends or people that are all of similar interests kind of learning it together. Yeah, that's been a big comment. I got, uh, I, I did a talk at Create Tech recently, which was a, a conference for creative technologists here in New York City done by 4As. And after my talk, this man who was about, I think he was probably like maybe 45, he came up to me and he's like, I've got a I've got a 14-year-old girl, and I've been a developer for years, and I've been encouraging her, but if there's not another girl for her to go do this with, she won't do it. Mm. So I, I think that that's really important, that aspect of community and that aspect of peer collaboration. Definitely. Uh, it's funny because this is rather timely. I have a friend who is an IT, and he's a manager, and... Underneath him, there's a woman who is an IT tech, and people come mm -hmm. in all the time and you know say like, "Well, can I talk to your IT guy after they've been speaking to her, <laughs> you know, for a while about technology and what's been fixed, you know, on their system and things like that?" And she's like, "I have the IT person," and that seems yeah. to happen a lot in technological fields as well as gaming fields. It's an interesting sort of yeah. assumption. That happened to me at the GDC, which was really interesting because I was in the PlayStation booth this year for my game that I'm currently working on. It's a mobile game for PlayStation uh, Mobile, and it's called Crystalon. And I am standing in the booth with the controller 
dressed very nice, <laughs> like completely professionally, you know, mm -hmm. long, like, you know, over my knee, black skirt, heels, the, the whole nine, you know, and I'm trying to like prep and talk about my game and the number of times that guys were talking to me about it and then they would ask, you know, who programmed it or if they could get, if anyone was around, they could talk to to, to find more. And I was like, you're talking to me right now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, hopefully, you know, that the face of that will change over time and you won't have quite that disparity anymore. You can kind of understand people's confusion if they're just not used to seeing it. It's sad. And do you know that history of computing? Do you know how ironic it is that we say this? No. What is it? Okay. Are you ready? This is, this is my favorite part. It turns out that computer programming um, was kind of innovated by women uh, from the beginning all the way through till now. And because it was associated with typing and secretarial work, um, it was considered a woman's job. <laughs> mm. It was considered woman's work. It was considered uh, something that secretaries did. And actually, if you look at the war efforts, what you see is that women were programming um, after World War II and the Korean War. There's, there's whole rooms full of computers, and there was even this idea, it refers to a very specific uh, computer science, but it came to refer to this like idea of women at, at large as a compute herb, which I think yeah. is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it turns out, actually, if you look at the numbers, women had a tremendous impact in computer science. And in 1987, so much so, 47% of developers were women. Um, and I, I just think that's really interesting. And since 1991, those numbers have been declining, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I found uh, on their site. And I, I, I'm just sort of shocked. And I think it has a lot to do with gaming. And I think particularly the personal computer and game consoles were kind of targeted to breadwinners and men and their sons. Mm -hmm. And it, it created this impression in Gen X and continuing into Gen Y because they were you know, starting to play games in the 90s, the games and computers were not for women. And um, Apple even ran this entire campaign where they they, they de-feminized computers. And it was all about the founding fathers and great men. So, you know, Adam, Benjamin Franklin, like, you know, the, the one for Benjamin Franklin has a, my favorite quote, what kind of man owns his own computer? <laughs> and... <laughs> And, and, and from there, the gaming ads, they started taking this, like, decidedly misogynistic tone, uh, things like naked women advertising processors. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you're just sort of, the Game Boy ads are particularly terrifying. My favorite has, like, a 14-year-old looking down on his trousers, and there's a, a ferret, like, going around. What? Like, yes, yes, ferrets. And it's just more fun than a ferret down your trousers. Oh, my gosh. That's not good for anyone. <laughs> no. And, and then there's another one that, that is, it's, they get rapey too, which is, is more mortifying. There's one of a, a woman chained to a bed, clearly against her will. And the type is like in this broken up, like typeface. It's like seriously distracting. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> well, I, that's marketing gone um, wild. I mean, you can it, see that yeah. you'd want to even it out and try to find a new, uh, you know, a new genre of people who'd want to play, but that's like way oh, over the top. I know, it's over the top. And, and it's so funny because like you think, oh, maybe it's gotten better. But when I was at the GDC, one of the things that I, I managed to see at Kotaku, uh, either before, either right before or right after, 
I know it has made me personally sad as a woman developing for PlayStation at that point. Um, was the Vita ad was a double-breasted woman because it's got back touch. So the ad is a woman with boobs on the front and boobs on the back. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what is... Uh, when I was at uh, NYCC this year, there was an app. And mm -hmm. at the app table, I mean, I suppose there's not a lot you can see when it comes to, you know, this wasn't even like a gaming app. It was just another app. I'm not even going to mention what it was. Mm -hmm. And there was really not a lot to see. So they had... Um, little like hors d'oeuvres on the table and then women were there in like little shorts and like, <laughs> like cropped up t-shirts trying to like offer these hors d'oeuvres so people would come over and learn about the app because I guess they had nothing like creative to show except for that which I thought was like, weird at, at NYCC to see but you should have seen the GDC uh, you should have seen that this is probably going to get me banned from every party uh, for Minecraft from here to the end of time, but you should have seen the VIP notch party at the GBC. <laughs> I had someone who told me that they, I think it was Ubisoft, and I hate to say that because I really do enjoy Ubisoft and, and friends with them, the <laughs> Frag Dolls. They were going around saying, like, thanks for supporting our games, free hugs, and giving people, like, hugs. But they oh, were, it was just strange. I asked Zach Gage about, about this, and, and he and I had a conversation after Comic Con about the the energy boost stuff he saw outside the GDC one year. And it, it, it just seems to be really accepted and people just look the other way. And I think it's time we stop looking the other way, you know? And um, I think by building communities of female developers and kind of fostering women to not only make games, but to start companies and start releasing games, that we have the potential to kind of really prove to the marketplace that there is a gigantic marketplace they're leaving untapped. And, you know, it, it, it it's tragic. I, I don't know what's going on there, but... Um... <laughs> well, let, let's go back to New York Comic Con, which is where <laughs> I first uh, saw the panel of you guys uh, for local mm -hmm. indie developers, the New York scene, talking about you know, some of the games they made and having just discussions about, I guess, the city in general mm -hmm. and things like that. That was really exciting to to have a panel like that and get to meet, you know, I guess five of you or so. That were, yeah. 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 So let's go to your education and your childhood. Did you play like as a child as you're getting into? into oh, absolutely. I was, I was my favorite picture of me. Um, and I like to actually put the two pictures side by side because they kind of show like a lifelong addiction. Um, <laughs> When I was little, I was so obsessed with Pac-Man, like I would do nothing else. And um, it was just like my favorite thing. And um, I saw a person dressed up as Pac-Man in the World's Fair in 1984, I guess. I ran screaming across the, you know, I was nine at this point, Aww. screaming across the, you know, parkway and grabbed this poor person. Um, and there's a picture of me face stuffed it down into the fluff. <laughs> Did they react well? I mean, they thought this was cute or they were just frightened by your enthusiasm? Who knows? Uh, she's hugging me or she's hugging me in the photo. So no telling, you know, just like Pac-Man. Um, right. You know, I, I, my sister and I played games all the time. Um, what was always really interesting to me, though, even at a really young age, she's always been more of a casual player, quote-unquote, and I've always been more of a hardcore player. Uh, so I was always into the space shooters, and then 
and these games that were a little more aggressive and she was into the kind of like her favorite game was the strawberry shortcake game and then she evolved to like be a, a super tetris man uh, but man can she kick my backside in tetris um <laughs> but yeah we, we we had different uh we had different personalities and it, it you know it's she's a puzzle she's a huge puzzle fan so i can get her to play my games for puzzle games i know i'm running um, but yeah, so yeah, I grew up playing them, and I spent a lot of time playing them with my girlfriends, which was a different thing that I think happens maybe necessarily uh, perception-wise, because I think like a lot of women play games together when they're children. I think it's incredibly natural. <laughs> That's really neat. I never really had that experience. I ended up I had a, a brother, and so we played you know versus each other all the time. I ended up hanging out mm-hmm. with all of his friends because I liked gaming. It's, it's nice that you had women in the area like girls that were kind of did the same things you were and could hang out and play. Yeah, I mean, I blame that on the fact my sister is really social. <laughs> there you go. So what kind of education She's, do you have? Sorry, you want to talk about your sister more? That's cool. No, I'll talk about my sister for hours. Best is just coming <laughs> That's uh, good. That's a good thing. She's my best friend. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I uh, – so then I went to to school and, you know, had your, your general gifted kid problems um, and uh, managed to get out and go to college. But I was really poor. I, I'm basically, you know, trailer trash. Um, I know. <laughs> and uh you know i i there was a more likelihood of a, a my the statistics were more in favor that i would go to prison than college oh, um <laughs> given my income bracket and my gender um so anyway uh went to college and uh, found it really awkward and weird because uh, i tried to do computer science and physics and i just had a horrible experience as it just horrible experiences in the sciences in college and the liberal arts department was just so much more welcoming Mm -hmm. that I ended up, uh, my sophomore year, I switched and declared a lit major. And, uh, then I, I graduated and, um, came to, um, you know, came to San Francisco because I'd been developing the entire time building like, you know, playing massive multi you know, multiplayer games in MUDs and stuff. And mm-hmm. I was one of those text-based gamers. And, and then I ended up, it, one thing led to another. I ended up in the UK for part of my education. It's a, it's a longer story, but long story short, I got recruited by the tech industry in the Bay Area. Um, and a digital arts gallery brought me out to be the art director. And then very rapidly, between 96 and 99, we all know what happens in San Francisco, right? Um, my skills became incredibly lucrative hmm. and uh, I, I started programming in Java and JavaScript and HTML at a company and actually started as a web engineer and I had a female boss who was awesome and she sent me to uh, development classes at UC Berkeley and uh, that's where I really got you know my first real taste of what object-oriented programming looked like. And uh, from there, I just worked in the industry for years, but I kind of blew my arms out, so I switched to design at some point and did design because it's easier in our hands and then kept my development chops kind of for my own projects. And then a couple years back, I did my master's here at NYU Poly, and um, I've kind of been making games on my own ever since. And then at NYU Poly, I was kind of like in on the ground of, of games really becoming massive over here and 
while I was uh, going to school, we opened the Game Innovation Lab uh, with Catherine Isbester, and I studied with her, and she got me really into human-computer interaction, which um, I think was was my calling from the get-go because it really explores the space between people and you know interaction models, and I, I really I really loved being here and. Um, she really helped my great my games go from just kind of these cool play experiences to actually thinking about tactics and stuff. And and I meanwhile the entire time because I had so much professional experience and so many years in design. I think by the time I started here, I'd like, been doing design for like sixteen years or something crazy. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I yeah it was bonkers. Uh, if you counted the time I'd been in like if you count design and interactive all together in a category, so like mm-hmm. interactive. Uh, for like 16 years because I started in 96 and I started here, I guess in, you know, something insane like 2010 or something ridiculous, so like 14 okay. years. So, um, you know, it had been a really long time coming. It's an interesting switch from the San Francisco kind of West Coast, which has a, a feel to it and, you know, very creative and a different kind of flow, I guess you'd say, to the, the work. <laughs> Going to New York, which is, you know, so much more, I would imagine, like hectic and schedule oriented and, you know, it has a lot of artistic you know, areas as well, but a lot, a lot of business, you know, kind of things as well. How did you find that transition and what drew you towards the East Coast? It sucked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me just be really blank, you know, really like frank about it. I, I got into tech because I was into new paradigms of human experience, right? And that's what, what really drove me into the web and really drove me into these kind of interactive spaces. And in the Bay Area, that was very prevalent. You know, we're doing like virtual reality and it's the future, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I bought into that then. And then when I came to New York, I found out the hard way that that's not here. And so instead of working at dot-coms and startups and innovative companies, I ended up in advertising, which was, gotcha. I'm just... Yeah, the ass end of the universe. I guess. <laughs> Maybe now is the time that I should ask you about the Olay.com's Grammy campaign, which I do, oh, which I do have questions about. Look at that, huh? I do have that questions about that. That was so against my moral standards. Uh, see, I was, was going to ask you. And I had one of the most sexist things I ever worked on happen there, and I, I had to retouch that poor celebrity. I don't know who she is, but the... The one in those ads, I had to retouch her, and I felt so bad. I made her look a good 15 years younger. I just wanted to, like, kill myself the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally, like, I got into the, I, you know, I, I got into the, like, you know, I got into it there. It was awful. I worked for the most sexist boss I've ever had. Um, <laughs> at one point, uh, he said something just so, so wrong, and I, like, corrected him and then he he basically was like who are you to question this and I was like well you know masters in science bitch (laughs) and it was it was just really it was it it was rough I mean it was it was it was terrible um I'm not gonna lie I did it because they paid me more um they paid me more in two weeks than NYU probably paid me to teach for an entire semester okay definitely I got that I mean there's there's a big divide I think like you know, when you talk about feminism or you talk about, you know, women's ideas, personally, I don't have a problem with makeup. I enjoy it for myself. I've been drawing on myself since I was five. So for me, it's not really any different. <laughs> but a lot of people do have that kind of mentality of, you know, there's a very divisive, like kind of sect, you know, talking about makeup and the concept of, you know, that and fashion and things like that. And I just wondered, like, how it, how it fell in with your philosophies and how you felt about you know, working there as well. 
awful. <laughs> no, it's, I, I literally, uh, whenever I need work, uh, if I still have to freelance, I actually send this thing out to get my calling card. And it literally has a chihuahua wrapped in a feather boa wearing a princess crown. And it just says, I, I put this picture called Banner Ads for Satan. <laughs> you should describe to people what this is because they probably don't know. Like Olay.com, there's a Grammy campaign where, you know, the woman's talking yeah. about like the proper makeup you would wear to the oh, Grammys oh. and like a how-to. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was my bad idea too. Um, yeah, basically they brought me on. Uh, I'm under an NDA, so I probably shouldn't go too into it. But you know, um, I, I was our art director of organic, and that's their uh, that's their client. And I didn't know what I was getting hired to do. Um, it was supposed to be an iPad app, and then I walk in and they slap me on this. And um, yeah, so basically, like I had to come up with like conceptual concepts campaign ideas and we had like two I really we went from zero to completed uh, assets in two weeks so I had to come up with the concepts for the campaign and then come up with the visual look and feel so I came up with like two ideas for it and uh, and I developed it out and you know money (laughs) (laughs) there you go Okay, yeah, it, well, you know, it's an honest answer. <laughs> I, I'll be honest, like, if I could have been at NYU teaching high school kids, I would have been, but unfortunately, my rent is through the roof, and not every job I can take is ethical, and I think the reason I keep that stuff on my site is I think it, it points to that, and I would, I think it would be dishonest to kind of front that I get to make a living doing what I love all the time. It's That's not New York. And even Frank Lance will talk about his history in advertising or, or Erica. And um, you sort of, it, it, you know, New York is, is harsh. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely appreciate advertising. I learned how to communicate. Um, and I learned a lot of really great skills. But because uh, I, I worked as a, a, you know, creative director and an art director, which is different than development. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, dude, I, I think it's a better job to have in advertising just because I think it's a little, the tech in advertising isn't that exciting. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't make web pages all day. Uh, <laughs> well, you have such a, a diverse set of, you know, skills. I mean, you've got art, you've got, you know, talking about being an art director on certain things, you've got your gallery, you, you do art yourself as well, and then you're coding and you've got the technical side. It's an, it's a very unusual combo to have, you know, sort of the artistic along with the practical and tech in one person. And now it looks like you also have some musical, you know, influence as well. I'm looking at your games, uh, besides Honey, like the 0000000 Swan Research Exploration. Like yeah. that, that whole, you know, there's a lot of games that seem to be um, like you move and everything else, like influenced by music as well. So how did how did the music aspect get into your design? Well, I've been making music. When my parents gave me my first computer, they also gave me my first Casio keyboard. And uh, I've been I've, I've made two records. Uh, Black Swan is one. Think about it. Six zeros. Swan. Uh, and memories. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah, and Memory Systems is another, uh, which was this fake corporation that tried to sell you ads to like wipe out part of your mind. It came out before Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, but it's the exact same idea. Okay. Um, and uh, that, I, I, I was kind of sad when I saw the movie because I was like, yeah, that was my bad idea. And then after I did Black Swan, Darren Aronofsky came out with Black Swan. I was like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> I've already been through this Hollywood bus off. Um, but uh, I seem to have a, 
a, a knack for knowing how you know, what band will be the indie film of the year. <laughs> but because uh, <laughs> see, I did that first. I I did that before it was mainstream. That's what you can say. <laughs> I did that before it was mainstream. Well, I just I, I just it just happens. But um, anyway, so yeah, I know and I've curated thousands of events at this point. I did nightclubs. I ran arts television access in the nineties, which is this media arts space. I own Devotion for four years. We did God knows how many shows and events, classes there. Um, yeah, I'm a lunatic, basically. You just, just, you're just you a jack of all amazing trades. I don't know how you decide what you want to do. You, I mean, you have had a, had a lot of jobs <coughs> that are very diverse. It's interesting. I get bored easily. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, as long as you just keep on going. I've always been told to specialize, but I think that that, that limits creativity. And I've always tried to have my ideas first and then figured out the medium in which I needed to express them. If I thought I could have expressed feminism and women in programming better through an art piece, I would have done it. But I'm just, I'm using my culture as my medium at this point, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just touch on each other. It's not completely, you know, it's not completely separated. They're all sort of artistic and thinking and, you know, pondering mm -hmm. kind of talents. Well, and gaming really knocks all those things together in a really special way. You know, gaming leverages people who are generalists. Uh, it leverages developers, designers, music, art. You need all of that in the game. So mm -hmm. it's, that's actually why I got into games is I felt like it was, you know, the best medium for me to use all of my skills to, you know, bring people into the experience I was trying to create. Um, well, especially yeah. in the indie scene, I mean, that's something that you find a lot of people that go to school for game design or, you know, go go in gaming and then they're kind of put in these different fields where they're a writer, or they're a coder, or they're like a level designer, really specific field, you know, aspects of the field. You kind of wonder, you know, if you're if you're making a game from scratch all by yourself, which a lot of, you know, new people from college do, you have to be, you know, a jack of all trades. You have to have all these various skills and combine them. And you really don't have like the means to go and say, oh, well, I'm only good at this. I need to get someone else who does this. And it's a lot of times you kind of have to just be everything. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of space in indie games to just be your own personal Jesus. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan. And, Someone um, to be your friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I'll, I'll continue to drop new wave fan references. <laughs> I love it. But uh, it, it's definitely one of those things where you sort of are your, your one, you know, one, one woman army. And uh, I, I'm, I'm cool with that. Like, I, I find it interesting. And I, I think that that's why you end up with people like me and Zach Gage and James and Doug Wilson. We're all like, we basically make art that works as games. <laughs> it's kind of the same language in a lot of ways. It is. It is. So, I mean, I guess that's. That's the majority of the story over here. I mean, I, I now teach at Magnet, which is NYU's big old gaming world. It's kind of nice. I mean, it works. But I teach in interactive arts, so I can kind of teach web design, and game design, sound design. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I have to ask you, what is a creative technologist in RU1? Uh, creative technologist is a wonderful term that people in advertising seem to invent for us. <laughs> <laughs> To describe people who know how to code with creative tool sets like open frameworks, and, and now they've even I see creative technologist jobs or like Rails jobs. I'm like, what is a king of I don't get it. Whatever. Uh, I think it, it, it's a way to entice developers and promise this. It's the same thing as like telling designers they'll get to be creative. 
I think it's the same thing as telling developers they'll get to be creative, but the truth is it's not so much. Not so um, okay. <laughs> I, I think it's in, in all but a very few number of cases, I think it is another term that people slap on things. Um, it sounds like but, a buzzword. It does. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's got a very buzzword feel. Um, and I mean, I guess I definitely fit the description of creative technologists because basically what they are looking for is someone who can design and develop but, uh, or, or can develop with the kind of creative coding platforms like open frameworks and processing that they're looking for. But I don't know, man. I think that's a, what do you think of that term? I think that's asking a lot for one person when you're specifically trained one direction or another. But... I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, for myself, like working in in the technological slash kind of gaming field where we're in like augmented reality and things like that, there's no name for that kind of company that, that does these particular things as things change with technology and things get, you know, more progressive and all these new things come on the market. There's not, not really terms that fit things anymore like the way they used to. So I can understand I'm trying to come up with one, but I don't, I don't know a creative technologist. It was web developer for a while. That was the hot one. Uh, you, you know, it's. I think that it's it's yeah it's, it's weird. And I think that basically like industry is always kind of following the technological innovations. And they're just looking for. It assumes technology is not creative, like that term. It, it, yeah, it really does, doesn't it? <laughs> it's just like it's like uh, artistic math, or I don't, I don't know. Artistic mathematician would be another way to put it. <laughs> there you go. So we've heard about your master's in science, um, January 2013 from NYU, at least mm -hmm. I have. Uh, so this science aspect and this technology aspect crossing into your work, can we talk about maybe specific examples uh, in your games and, and how you kind of blend those two things of the creative technologist? Yeah, I mean, that's all. I mean, that's all Catherine's influence on me. Um, it was definitely one of the best uh, kinds of experiences I've had. Um, Catherine is Buster, she's like a traditional human-computer interaction person, and she has a very heavy scientific approach to very creative work. Uh, if you look at Catherine's games, I think they're very, very creative, but I don't think that they're, they're um, held back at all. And she's got this very uh, non-linear thinking that she uses to approach her work. And, she has a very like kind of tactical, practical uh, background in HCI and, and computer science. And studying with her, she really enabled me to understand user experience on a much deeper level, that level being human-computer interaction. And I was able to do the kind of HCI research that quantified my, my findings. And it, it allowed me to do things like test um, my users in a very concise and intelligent ways to sort of evolve my design process. And that's a that's something that I believe all designers should learn how to leverage because it radically shifted how I approached my work. And it let me use the data to make better choices versus my own gut instinct. And in fact, what I found is that it's this really kind of beautiful process of discovery. And I was using the Connect and I was looking at the way that affect moved into um, moved into play with the body. So, like, what 
different things have to be involved to make you feel something if you're playing, say, a Kinect game versus a controller. Mm -hmm. And um, I found things to be really, really different. And I found that actually the tuning had to be way tighter and the ramping had to be way tighter. Also, I, I kind of unearthed this strange finding that that pointed me back to Scott McCloud's understanding comics. And that it, my experience with the Connect is that if you made people's avatar too cartoonish or too realistic, there was a weird <coughs> gap that happened in their brain. Hmm. And um, it didn't feel as natural as like abstraction, which is why I think like the best Connect interactions, like your Shape Fitness Evolve 2012, has your own body in there. And I, I think that dance avatars are really fun. I think that works. But those never quite exactly have that same connection. And in, in those cases, I think you can customize your avatar, too. Um, but I, I, I definitely noticed that in, in, in terms of my research, that player identification rose with the more abstract it took my avatars. Um, I think Clay probably has that down. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think that there's... You know, there's that, and it really helped me to design because all of a sudden, instead of trying to design crap characters, I was trying to design interesting uh, interactions, and um, it, it it was really cool. It was definitely, and I succeeded. I mean, my thesis by following the data, I was able to craft an experience that was a lot more compelling. But it wasn't weird. Go ahead. I'd love to read that. Because it sounds really neat because it sound, how do you quantify something like like look at your emotional growth game or something how do you mm -hmm. quantify emotional contagion or you know how do you quantify a lot of these games are very you know dealing with a lot of social subjects you know that would be very difficult to, to kind of put a number scale to or you know survivability like how how do you measure that yeah i mean well one of the biggest things that i did is i actually really wanted to get a heart rate lock that turned out to be a little hard um, and there's definitely a lot of tools available for, for things like, you know, biometric readings mm. and, and, and brain wave readings and stuff. I'm waiting on my new, uh, my new, uh, I got the new, uh, not NeuroSky, but the other folks. Um, Evo, I got their, I think it's them. I, I, if I remember correctly, I got their new headsets. Those little actions are very good. But, um, Biometric data, uh, that's one way, but also the kind of more interesting thing is you can do journaling. You can have people write their responses and kind of track keywords. Um, you can have a scale from one to 10, you know, um, and then you can get some numbers that way. You can do um, a lot of things that are more open-ended. Catherine has this um, really cool tactic she has where she, she Catherine's research has been about really trying to crack the space and space open between uh, designer and user. And that's kind of been her whole reason for being um, in her, in her research. And she has this thing called the sensual, um, sensual testing instrument. And it's these abstract shapes that kind of evoke emotion. And you can actually rate your play experience based on those shapes. Um, I thought that was really cool. And one of the things I did in my thesis that kind of took it a step further is I asked players to draw what their experience felt like. And um, I could look at the drawings and just intuitively on like a very gut level, I'm sure if I analyze the shapes themselves that might help, 
but on a very gut level, I was able to figure out like what the experience felt like to these people. Did it feel, you know, floaty? Did it have stars in it? Was it pointy and jaggedy? Like, what was it like? Some people like when, uh, cause I was trying to play with fear cause I think fear is very primal emotion. And if you want to get to compassion and you want to get to love, fear is, is, is one way to go through. And, um, so I put these players in these very disempowered positions to, to help tap into their empathetic systems. Um, and one of the things that I found was that um, players, as I continue to strip back the abstraction, when I continue to like leverage things that are known to cause negative affect, like distorted uh, forms of the body, uh, loud grating noises, surprising sounds, dark spaces, uh, the affect uh, went way up. And that's something I had never considered. As simple as it sounds, I had never considered those things, like how to unlock emotions in design in quite that way. And and I, I, I was able to do it, but it, it was definitely a learning process. And, and I had to go into it with a totally different kind of mindset, because I think the artistic mindset is this of the, I have the vision. Mm-hmm. And the science... <laughs> And the scientific uh, approach is I have a question. And uh, it was, yeah, I, it was like I have this question and what do I learn from asking that question? And it was really awesome. It was definitely the first time I felt like I had grown as a designer in a good six or seven years. <laughs> ah, well, the combination is wonderful. I mean, you would have to almost do that. I, I like the biometric aspect and I've read some things about that just to find that you know like, that the emotions are so similar you know that your mm-hmm. pleasure and your pain both like make your dermal layer thin and you really don't mm-hmm. know which one is is really causing you know which emotion that person is feeling and they could just be very twisted and you just have to kind of make an educated guess based on the the visuals and like you're saying that the reactions you've had of people you know based on those visuals before just kind of a combination of of different parameters it, it's, it's really fascinating yeah, the best part is I had to do a human testing. Uh, you have to do an IRB if you do human testing, mm. which is you learn about all the sick and twisted things that people have <laughs> in the past. <laughs> You're like, oh, here. do not test on pregnant women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was. Uh-huh. I would. I would definitely say that for artists and creatives looking to unlock a lot of their creative thinking, that that the sciences um, are definitely worth exploring because I think science is incredibly creative. It just, it, it starts with a different base assumption, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that you, that I wonder, you know, about your sensibility and, and how it's influenced your games and your point of view, you know, obviously gender issues as well, but having had that artistic background, you know, for, for the gallery and things like that and being used to kind of, I guess the space of looking at something, you know, almost as an installation all the time and, you know, considering it, you know, having a chance to, to kind of watch and consider it versus, I mean, a lot of game developers are kind of into the quick, 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 shoot, shoot, kill. You know, there's a different kind of, I guess, mentality or sensibility of that where, you know, you may come from a place where you're you're kind of trying to engender that deep thought and kind of social issues and things, things of that nature rather than just like, shoot it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I got interested in games because I wanted to help people understand their impact on each other. And that's been sort of the area I have been exploring for almost, 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 I guess, 
like six, seven years now. Um, and that's what Honey was about. It was about like our collective ecology. Emotional growth was about this idea. Ultimately, I wanted to make it so like if you had a sad bunny and a bunch of happy bunnies surrounded you, <laughs> then all of a sudden you wouldn't be sad anymore. You know, just like fun, fun things like that. Um, and, and just sort of drawing those things to the surface. I, I think that, that that kind of deeper thinking um, and that kind of thing that's going, Doug Wilson has it going on in his work too. It's definitely more of an artistic premise. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's something that has the potential to blow games wide open. Um, and I'm very excited by by the potential there. And you see it with games like Joust. You see it in in some of Eric's work, definitely Eric Zimmerman. You see it in you know pretty much everybody was on the stage with us that day. Uh, Syed's work with Baby Castles. There's this you know, attempt to really bring games to a deeper level. And my friend Heather Kelly did a, a show in France, uh, this big exhibition. Um, she gave a talk about it. I was listening to her talk, and she was just talking about how she believes games have the potential to occupy a wider space. And I, I, I completely agree with her, <laughs> obviously. And I think that, that as game designers, it is our responsibility to explore those terrains. So you just saw, you just saw like complete proof financially. Oh, well, I mean, their company kind of went under, but you just saw, <laughs> you just saw complete proof conceptually that uh, a game like Journey could take game of the year and be a top download and be incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's really important to kind of, no moments where we get to take games outside the halo, you know, parameter. Um, and, and Journey them, restores my faith in humanity. I know, right? <laughs> like, maybe it won't be so bad after all. <laughs> Although you've said, you know, before that, you know, the concept of, I guess, catering to the financial masses, you know, and having, mm-hmm. you know, having that be the driving force or, you know, making art for the sake of selling it and for the kind of snobby, you know, upper class rich mm-hmm. to just buy the art is, is not where it's at. Like, what do you think about something like that game company, which had such a successful game and such a beloved game and to see Genova Chan like just break like see them break up and see you know Austin Wintery go and they kind of form their own thing and you know that, yeah. that's just well so I mean sad. it's really sad but I think it has a lot to do with um, the contracts they set up for themselves going into the process and the three game deal they had going from PlayStation and I just heard Robin talk at Indiecade and Robin was the you know mm-hmm. main Main, main lady going on there and she was talking about how at some point they had to choose whether or not they wanted to make the game they wanted to make and you know financial ruin and know that they were going to all have to get jobs after the game was finished or you know or or not and and they chose to do it and I, I think that that was incredibly you know incredibly risky on her part <laughs> and uh, you know God bless her, you know. <laughs> yeah. And and but now she's got a new company with Kata Sakahashi and Vikram. Uh, I can't remember Vikram's last name off the top of my head, but they, they've got this company called Phenomenal. Uh, and it, it, it they're just starting out in San Francisco, and they kind of want to be a a kind of publishing house for any developers. I I think that you know Robin is gonna 
you know, Robin Snicky is going to continue to do amazing things. And um, yeah, it sucks that that game company couldn't stay together, but you know, but there were decisions made. Definitely. Robin's famous now. <laughs> I never got a chance to talk to her because she had already left by the time I ended up interviewing them. So I was always sad about that. Yeah, she's really cool. And I, I, I think that there's, yeah, they, they made their reputations. They all made their careers. And I, I, I think sometimes those risks are, are definitely worth taking. I mean, definitely advance the field. I think we have a commonality, in, and I'm guessing this is the, the game you were just speaking about with the Connect. Is that Nightmare Kitty? Yeah, it became game over, but it started as Nightmare Kitty. Yeah. Okay. Well, you showed up Maker Faire uh, in 2011, and you won two Editor's Choice Awards, which is so cool. I was just at Maker Faire um, this year as well. So what did you think? Like, I know you've spoken about Make Magazine and Adafruit and like, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. How was Maker Faire for you? What was that experience like? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I love Made Magazine. I wholeheartedly endorse their crazy. Um, and, and I wholeheartedly endorse getting the, the youth of today interest, interested in making engineering and realizing that, you know, they're not forced to consume, but they can make. And I think that that's tremendously powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I admire Adafruit as a businesswoman or as, or, or you know, Memora is a businesswoman, and her company is, I think, a pinnacle of what open source hardware can be. And I, I went to MIT this year and spoke at Yovan Hardware Summit, which was particularly interesting being a software person. Uh, but it's because I had done so much work with like hacking the connect or like doing news or like, you know, wholeheartedly misusing the technology. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that was that um, there was this amazing female community there, and engineers have it just as bad as, as, as software yes. designers, and, and there were just these amazing women there just taking names, you know, just really just blowing things out of the water and, and figuring out ways to really empower people through hardware to realize that they have control. And I think as as these systems get more and more locked down with both software and hardware, being able to work around them um, is really powerful. One of the, the things that I started an article in Wired about darknet stuff, and I was thinking to myself, I was like, wow, interesting, because like maybe I need to have a darknet for, for code liberation just because it would foster this kind of really deep interconnectivity that we used to have on the web back when the web was basically reserved for nerds. Um, <laughs> because, you know, back in the 90s, like the early 90s, the web was a magical place. And it doesn't have that anymore. People don't, like, I remember what Usenet used to look like. Or, are you old enough to remember Usenet? No, I'm sorry. Did we used to have these, like, people would comment on something on Usenet, and it would be four pages long, uh-huh. you know? <laughs> we would have these, like, I mean, there were there were trolling going on, but they, there were also these really deep intellectual conversations happening, and people, like, they didn't just spit out replies. They, they got into it. They were like, okay, now we talk about this. And um, I think that the web has lost a lot of that, and I... I don't know, man. I think with things like building your own darknet or building your own mesh network or 
are building your own way to sort of circumvent a lot of these systems that are holding a lot of us back. You can really empower people. And, and I think the idea of making is, it's just, it's huge. Like just the notion that you don't have to buy. Mm-hmm. Well, there's just yeah. brilliant people there. I mean, you can walk around and just see all these creative con concepts, a lot of recycled things and everything. And they're really, mm-hmm. really friendly towards, you know, just the project being, you know, worthwhile and they don't seem to care, you know, who made the project as long as the project, you know, is is really accomplishing something, you know, innovative, which is so cool. Yeah, well and also they encourage children, you know, which is huge. They do, although I have to tell you, when we were there showing our prototypes, I was very annoyed with the small children. I was like, stop touching the priceless prototype! Stop, I can, stop breaking uh, it! So I designed for that from the floor. That's one of the reasons <laughs> I won so many awards. I basically was like, what will be fun for kids to do? You know, and <laughs> I think you have to kind of think about that when you're applying for anything at night side. Because it's a kid's spot, you know, we just did a... Uh, uh, there's not much. There's not much documentation of it on our website because I've been too too naughty. But uh, Night Games was done at NiSci, uh, which is where Maker Fair usually happens. Um, this last spring, and we played it with kids, and it was so much fun. And it's a PlayStation Move where it's like an interactive, reactive dance floor with quadraphonic sound, and you can shake these moves and trigger different sounds. And like, there's like game dynamics, like follows a leader, like battles, and you know. It's, 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 <laughs> Is this the person in the bird mask? Because I've seen bird mask person playing with a child. I know people in yes. strange outfits. Okay. Well, the irony is you had to quantify playing with child there because I wasn't sure which bird mask you meant. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh my God, I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, how many bird mask games do you have? I just sent, it's so funny, I sent Robin Henneke a picture of a bird mask on Twitter, like, last night. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I was like, here's a bird mask! <laughs> oh, Thank God there's places in the world for people like me. You know, they don't just stick us in asylums and run away screaming. <laughs> no, that's a, it's the perfect place. This is why I love the gaming industry. You know, you can, you can do all these things and people laud you for your creativity and it's great. I know we can like make up worlds and like create mythologies and it's it's I really don't you know I took a hundred thousand dollar a year pay cut to leave advertising. Oh my goodness, that's devotion. That's true devotion. Oh, why do you think my gallery is called what it's called? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm now, so- see, are you happy though with that choice? I mean, do you feel like it's fulfilling enough, or do you feel like some days, you know? Like, I would like to have a designer's suit now. Just go away. You know what I miss more than anything? I miss the respect. Uh, because I got so far in that industry to really kind of rip it up and, and try and go into academia where they, they really have no clue. It's like, well, I got to be one of the 3% most successful women in my field. And you guys have no idea. You know, and they can figure it out eventually. But I see it in, in the way that people treat me because, you know, I don't have a PhD and, like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't look like an academic. I definitely don't talk like an academic. I swear I'm a sailor. Um, yeah, they can't measure that sort of thing. It's definitely, it's a weird divide. <laughs> it really is. It's a totally different world. It's like, wow, you went and did a PhD. Well, guess what? I built things. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, my pink hair is actually a great asset and gives me some credibility. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I helped, and I definitely can look at things that I built, and I can see how they shaped 
the interaction paradigm for the web straight out. Like it's not even a question. And um, so this is more like self-reliant. You have to just look at yourself and say, like, I know what I did, and this is it's what okay. I did. It's okay. Right? It's okay. It's okay. I'm worthwhile. I'm worthwhile. But yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about academia recently because I'm 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 finally to the point where I need a full time job. I, I can't keep doing this. It's just ridiculous. Um, and I'm looking around at the number of men who have tenure track jobs or full time jobs with a terminal degree, and the women who who basically have to do PhDs. And it academia is 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 far more sexist than advertising by an order of magnitude. Really surprising. Um, I, I think so, just simply because of what it asks of you to have tenure. Like my best friend went straight through, and now she is looking down. She got tenure this year, but she's looking down, being 40 and not able to have a kid. You know, she waited too long, and her body kind of gave out on her. And she made the choice because had she gotten pregnant before getting tenure, the competition is so bad. There's just no way. And she had to fight. She had people vote against her, even with all the work she put in and all the fighting. And, um, you know, it, it just does not favor uh, favor women in, in any way. It, it really, because, like, you have to be, if you go straight through, you're basically 40 by the time you get a PhD, by, by the time you get tenure, which means you have any job security at all. And that's just hostile. Like and and then your max pay is like sixty thousand mm-hmm. dollars for. Let's say you go all the way through the arts, you've been there forever. You get a hundred and ten thousand dollar job. That's like starting level art director salary. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's academia is definitely a it's an interesting place, and I I think it the whole system is that's why I do consideration like. I, I feel like the whole system needs radical rethink. Well, is it the same for the men? Like, how old are they by the time they get a PhD in tenure? Is it the same age? Yeah, they're the same age, but, you know, they don't have to have kids. <laughs> oh, I see. You're saying biologically we're at a disadvantage. Biologically, yeah. Biologically, you get knocked out, you know, and um, you want to put the time in to be a mom, you know, and it, it you can't just leave your behind and go to a conference, you know? <laughs> and the GDC did not even have, like, changing booths until, like, last year for, like, diapers and stuff. Like, these conferences are just not, they're not good, they're not good to moms. And I think that it's its really important, particularly in gaming and academia, these conferences aren't set up. You're not expected to have a crying baby at, like, an academic conference, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's that's true. I mean, that children are generally not welcome in professional situations of any sort. Well, I know. So, like, what if, you know. Um, Although it could be an American thing. I mean, I've been talking to some people in Canada and elsewhere, and they seem to be much more, you know, open to the concept of, like, trading, you know, uh, help, you know, as far as, like, men and women both supporting children, taking time off, you know, the whole six-month Canada, Canada six-month maternity is, leave. Yeah. All that. It could just be an American, like thing as well i'm not sure yeah and the, the the academic setting in america is far more hostile and it takes far longer like you can literally have a phd by the time you're 28 and actually earlier it's only a year to do a master's and two to three years to do a phd so if you go all the way through it's seven years you're done by the time you're 28 hmm. it's six years in the united states it's two to three years for a masters it's significantly more grueling 
basically somebody with a master's degree, a good master's in the U.S. is the equivalent of a Ph.D. in Europe. It's so just funny for- because we're not like known for our great education, you know, <laughs> like does it take us that much longer just because <laughs> that's very strange. No, it's, it's just because it's the way our systems are required to you basically have to constantly repeat coursework. Um, and I, I think it's a money laundering scheme personally. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Um, cause you could, I, I don't think you need six years for a PhD. If you have a master's already, you should be able to do a PhD in two years. I see you're just repeating the same basic courses they, that you took in your master's. Definitely makes sense. It, not even the same, the exact. Oh. Um, oh. Yeah. So if you did a master's and you want to go back and do a PhD, you have to start from the floor. Um, which makes no sense to me. Um, Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> we won't. We, I don't want to end on this depressing note. Is there anything else you want to talk about? We're getting yeah, close to ending. I know. I gotta think of something fun. Um. So what do I think about? I don't know. Well, I mean, okay. Here's I something. Can talk about the version. Well, go ahead. Well, you're you're known for for being a speaker, like basically, because you've gone to you know Comic Con 2013, Montreal International Games Summit, you know Poly West Summit. Like you've done a lot of speaking. So how do you how do you find that? Is that something that makes you nervous, or you're just so used to it by now that you just like this is you know old hat? I'm not really sure how it happened. Um, <laughs> I think it's because I like to wear a lot of black and I'm pretty cranky. Um, I, I, I really do. But I think. I, Okay. I, think it's, I think it's because you're just like, my name is Phoenix Perry, and everyone asks you, where's your website? It's Phoenix Perry. Where's your Twitter? <laughs> it's Phoenix Perry. Like, that part I thought was so funny. <laughs> just, like, very dry and funny. That's why people have uh, What's your Skype? Phoenix Perry. It's Perry. <laughs> Either I'm the most uninventive person on the planet, or clearly the fact I've been around on the web forever. <laughs> you're just like, I snagged that. That's <laughs> like that back in 1990. It's mine. Early, early adopter. The only thing I did, there are two Phoenix Prairies. Um, and the other one is, is, she reminds me so much of me. She's like this young, awesome uh, artist in, in the UK. And uh, she's got the Gmail one, which I was a late adopter because I owned the URL. So she's got Phoenix Prairie at Gmail, I think. And I'm like, ah! So Phoenix Prairie <laughs> one at Gmail. So I <laughs> she probably was sad because, because everything was taken. But yeah, I mean, I guess we, the, I guess the, the, the happy note is I really believe that, that if we're women right now, if we band together, if we connect each other, we promote each other, if we leverage the, the human network that we have, we can change this. Not only for ourselves, but I think we can change it for younger women. And I think we can make it so, you know, things are better. And I, I really believe in that. And I, I guess the like uh, the positive note that I would end on is is just encouraging women to you know be kinder to each other. I speak about that a lot in in my talks, and and I think that it's you know there's a level of internalized sexism that that women carry around inside them that I think is incredibly limiting. And I I often encourage competition but community, mm-hmm. and building up versus tearing down. And and I think that it's in all of our power to flip the tables on these guys at any point in time, any time we want. We're 50% of the population. We don't have to put up with this. <laughs> I think you can see it changing in all fields. I mean, there's a whole cosplay movement as well. You know, there's gaming, mm-hmm. there's there's technology. I think this is changing a lot. And I've, I've known a lot of wonderful guys who have stood up and said the same, like, oh, look, this is not right. And just kind of pointed things out and been really supportive as well, which is is awesome when everybody's sort of aware of the issue and like trying to address it in some way. 
And I think it's really true. And I think a lot of men are really powerful allies. Men don't want to be in this situation either because it paints them as these horrible aggressors that want to do nothing but hold ladies down. Mm-hmm. And it's just simply not true. The gender paradigm is evolving and, and, and we can all change it if we just work together. And I, I think so many men out there are ready. They're ready to be more emotionally evolved. They're, they're ready to ha- have women partners, both in business and in their personal lives. And I, I, I think that the time has come, you know. Here, here's something that they should not do. Because people are dressing as, and I'm using the quotes in my hair, booth babes, do not wear spandex. Do not try to match the lowest common denominator with equally lowest common denominator of men outfits. Don't do that. Don't need to see I, that. I think it, it can be done in irony. <laughs> it, it is often done in irony, and, and it makes me laugh, but at the same time, it makes me cringe. Please don't do that. We need to raise the bar a little. Yeah, raising the bar, but also I think, particularly in the gaming space, there's a lot of room for for making fun of the bar. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I, I just kind of like to point and go, eh, eh, you know, I, I will always be the the Simpson character, you know. Ah, yes, yes. And 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 I, I just sort of, you know, I do appreciate humor. I don't think we have to be so serious. I mean, I think that if we get all into like, you know slap downs and like seriousness you know the, the the reaction to like hardcore feminism is always like you know right. crankiness yeah and i i think if we we work together and have humor and laugh and joke about the fact oh my god did you see that latex cosplayer over there in the thong that's the dude <laughs> i think people would just laugh for hours and I, you know i i think there's there's time there's a time and place for, for seriousness and cosplay is definitely not it. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Come on, you're dressed as Dr. Who. So. <laughs> hey, that's that's attractive. All right. I know. <laughs> I know. My boyfriend made me mad once and he asked how he could redeem himself and I made him dress as Dr. Who. Now which one though? <laughs> um which one do you think? <laughs> well, there's there's a debate. I personally am a Matt Smith fan. Ooh, I, I I have to admit it was it wasn't Matt Smith as much as I love the outfit they put Matt Smith in. Ah I, yes, the bow tie. I, I absolutely love the bow tie. I just like his hair. I mean, I gotta be honest. He's well, he is an a twenty year old hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He brings he brings the concept of a thinner, non you know traditionally ideal man in as somebody really cool and hot like he changes that for me which is is a cool aspect he does yeah but also that's just british like yeah british. yeah that's british too uh, it's just english i mean europeans are, are thinner he's a very traditionally attractive european man um and and but yeah i definitely agree with you he for americans in particular he strikes a kind of indie indie credibility that most american men can't we've not seen since john luke you know picard um, <laughs> another Englishman, like, and uh, you know, I, I think it's it's exciting as ladies. We, I, I have to admit though, I loved my favorite doctor is Doctor David Tennant. Okay, okay. See, I'm not so far into his uh, season yet. Like, I'm way behind. Like, I've seen all Matt Smiths and I've seen the older ones, but I'm I'm not so far into David Tennant, so I can't really like have an opinion on him yet. Oh, he's so good. He does like it's towards the end. Tennant really hits a note. I think when he was kind of personally dissatisfied, um, it really 
like he I think he physically went through a lot because they have they have him doing so so much jumping and stuff and uh, I think physically the things I saw from from David Tennant is that like they had him on a wire a lot and and that kind of thing. Um, I think he gets really good towards the end. I mean, it's interesting because I thought the the last season of Doctor Who had inexcusably bad writing. Um, but that could have just been me. The leaf, I, I, the leaf drove me freaking crazy. But um, they, they, they kind of tied it together in the end. Like, I could tell there had been a plan there. But... It's the companions that I really like, like the interaction with the companions, the whole ponds, you know, thing. I just was so attached to them. And just, like, certain companions just, just change it for me. Like, Rose, like, I can't even watch, like, any of that season um, with Chris. Yeah. Because Rose is it's like Rose really... I don't like. Yeah, she's really bubbly and blonde and kind of stereotypical. Um, but man, I really love the new companion. I think she's my favorite. This like, yeah. crazy hacker chick. Yeah, the impossible girl. I can't remember what her name is right now. Oh, that, yeah. She's, I think, my really companions. Uh, she's the one that seems most likely to kick your ass in a fight. Yes. Uh, she's and, like Mary Poppins that's grumpy. Yeah, and also, I mean... River song. I mean, that, wait, that, that, that's that's I just I just don't have to Farscape. But um, no, wait, I'm still in Doctor Who. Uh, no, I love uh, Farscape too. But yeah, no, you're right. You're right. It's River. They song. have that same name, don't they? River song is Doctor Who, but then song. River is. You're thinking about um, Firefly thinking. Serenity. River. I am. Yeah, yeah. I am. There's just so many rivers and songs. <laughs> now we're just rambling. Now we're rambling. <laughs> But yeah, River is awesome, man. I, I, I'm a little in love with her. Um, she but, also is very different. I mean, she's like, I would say mid-40s or something. She's not like iconically beautiful in a traditional way. You know, she she kind of brings the whole sexy scenario to, you know, middle-aged women who are wanted by young 20-something British men. And there's a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> and also, she's just so confident and curvy, and I think she's a role model. Like, she is. I mean, like when she incarnates into her body, she's like a younger, like African American woman, and she dies and then comes back as as the current River Song, which is like the bouncy haired redhead. You know, she just like she's so happy. She looks at herself and she's like, "Look at me!" And she's just like so excited about herself, which is really cool. I think it's it's really cool, you know. And I yeah, we need more of that. Um, <laughs> Because, like, man, why do we have to get old, like, so quick? Have you Did you see my thing on Twitter about I should let you go because I got I to gotta run? But did you see the cool thing on Twitter about um, the female model who has extended her career about becoming trans? No. I just – the last <laughs> thing I saw was, like, feminism and social research. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that happens. Um, but there's this, like, woman. She became a man to extend her modeling career. Like, she really was trans or she just became that to, to just for the purpose of, like – promoting her her career it, you know I, her, her article reads in the voice of someone who's always been trans okay. uh, who kind of came out but she's straight and uh, she's married but a lot of trans people are not are not necessarily you know um necessarily defined in the way that we would think you know just because you are a trans uh into f doesn't mean you don't want a girlfriend you know mm-hmm. um I think there's that stereotype, but um, she trans. She's a trans um, kind of model, and she is totally hot. And she looks better as a guy than she ever did as a girl. She's, really? 
she's slammingly sexy. She's got the Matt Smith thing going on. Wow. Because uh, she's like all gaunt and thin with the, the asymmetrical hair. and the, Yeah, she's got that going on. And it, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna, I think that's really cool because, like, it's, 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 she had to talk about, like, you know, basically her career was done. She was 25, so she became a man, like, as his longevity. You know, what is that? <laughs> that would be a very strange switch, like, having to, you know, kind of deal with people's perceptions of you changing so radically. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find out more about Phoenix Perry at phoenixperry.com. I suggest you check out her games. Very interesting uh, woman. And you can find me at greatareapodcast.com if you'd like to tweet me and obviously jonasy.com if you're listening to this on iTunes. Uh, I've cut the episode here because we kind of ramble on about New York for a while. And uh, since we, we got into Doctor Who and all sorts of crazy things that had nothing to do with gaming, uh, I left a lot of that in there just for entertainment and uh, cut the, the bits where we get really off topic. So I hope you enjoyed that. There'll be a couple episodes coming in the near future. And uh, look for me at Gray Area Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week or in a couple weeks with a brand new episode.